You may be seated. As you are, please take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. Today we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. Actually, let me begin with chapter 5, verse 11, just so we can get the context. About this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. Thus ends a reading of God's word. Let's, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks again for your scriptures for the light that you give to us through your word, for the comfort and the consolation that you give as well. Please speak to us this morning and enable us to hear, to receive, to believe, and to obey your word. It is in your name that we pray these things. Amen. Most of us uh, don't treat all warnings in our lives the same. Let me explain if I could. If you purchase a product with the warning that says, according to California's Proposition 65, this product contains chemicals that may cause cancer, birth defects, or reproductive harm. Now, these are all very serious things, are they not? Um, even though we read that, for most of us, we probably just go ahead and use the product. It's, it doesn't really affect us that much. However, if we... Being good Kansans, we're in bed at night and all of a sudden a, a storm brewed up and we heard in the distance the tornado sirens go off. Most likely we would take that warning very seriously. We would most likely jump out of bed immediately, grab our family and head to the basement or somewhere where we have safety in the midst of a storm. Well, as we come to our text today, there's a warning that the writer gives to his readers. And the warning is more in line with the second illustration that I gave with the tornado warnings than with the California Proposition 65. It's something that we must take to heart. We read in, in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 4, that it's impossible 
For those who have been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, tasted the goodness of the word of the Lord, and experienced the powers of the age to come, that when they have fallen, to be restored again to repentance. And I know for, for many Christians, these verses have caused a lot of difficulty in, in their life. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones comments, he says, there's no passages in the whole of Scripture which have more frequently troubled people and caused them soul agony than the passages found here in Hebrews 6 and then Hebrews 10 as well. Because you find many Christians who are looking at these passages and saying, is this me? You know, especially if they are Christians with a sort of a, a tender heart, a, a, a sensitive conscience, or, or maybe it's Christians who are struggling with sin. Maybe they have a besetting sin that they are wrestling with. And, and as they wrestle with that sin, they look at that and they say, could this be me? Could it be that I have fallen away and there's no opportunity for me to repent? And, and on top of that, uh, this is a very challenging passage to study. If you, if you don't believe me, I encourage you sometime just to take some time and, and to look at this passage and, and even grab a couple of commentators and open them and open them up and you'll begin to, to realize that the challenges that are, are here. And in some ways, some of the details of this passage are a lot less clear than we wish they were. I mean, for example, in verse four, what does it mean that we have tasted heavenly gift or or the goodness of the word of God in in verse 5 or or even in verse 6 where he says restore them again to repentance does that mean that they have had truly repented once before and and something had gone wrong and so you know as we as we look at these details it, it can be sort of unsettling and 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 confusing to Christians and and so it really sometimes strikes fear in the heart of believers but this passage is, is one of those where we could end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater if we're not careful. We could get so caught up in the details of what the author is trying to say that we sort of miss what the overall theme is that he's trying to share with us in these verses. And, and the reality is, is that his message actually is very clear. And it is this, that he's giving us a warning about the danger of apostasy. He's giving us warnings about the danger of apostasy. Well, even at that, Christians oftentimes wrestle. They begin to question, well, is he talking about those who have been regenerate, born again, who are true believers and they've lost their faith, or those who are true believers who have backslidden and fallen away into serious sin and under God's discipline? Or is he talking about unbelievers who think they're believers and, and, but who are not? And, and, and I, I would encourage us that let's just take a moment and to step back and to look at this text in, in the bigger picture, in the bigger context. Because in many ways, um, verses in chapter 5, verse 11, all the way through the end of chapter 6, is sort of a, a, a one line of thinking. And I wish we had time to cover all of that in one sermon. It, it may be beneficial, but unfortunately we've had to break it up over a number of ones. But let me go back and sort of review a little bit to sort of see the flow of the argumentation of the author. Uh, he, first of all, identifies a problem in chapter 5, verse 11, where he's speaking to these Christians about Jesus as the high priest. And they are hearing, but they're not hearing, if you know what I'm talking about. There's a problem. They, they have a dullness of hearing. The author is speaking. Words are coming out of his mouth. Words are going into their ears, but it's just not registering. Now, Parents, you know what I'm talking about, right? You ever talk to your kids 
and they're looking at you and you're looking at them and you are saying things and they're nodding their heads like they understand. But you just know that it's not registering. You know, but kids, sometimes it's the same way with your parents, right? You know, you're going, mom, mom, mom. And, you know, especially if there's a lot of people in the family, you know, she has a lot of things on her mind and she's trying to keep up with all those things. And you, and you, and you just realize she's not hearing. And it can be so frustrating when you have something important to communicate. And yet you realize that those that you're trying to share that with are, are not actually hearing. And that's what's sort of happening here. And so the author, he's, he's talking about this, this matter of spiritual decay in the life of these believers. And, and one of the dangers of being familiar with the things of God and growing up in the church is that sometimes things like the gospel, grace, faith, hope, all these things just become white noise. You, you just, you've heard the Bible stories a lot, kids, right? You could actually... Uh, quote them even before the Sunday school teacher gets it out of her mouth and you just sort of hear these things and, and, and you begin to forget truly the reality of what are these truths that are being communicated and, and unfortunately we can get to the point where we are not uh, appropriately responding to God's word. I mean it's, it's wonderful to read David in the Psalms and to see the things that that he shares in his attitude about God's word. Psalm 119, 103, talks about the word of God as being sweeter than honey. It is a delight to David's soul. He loves to hear the word of God that is given to him. Uh, Isaiah talks about the word and being humbled before the word, uh, trembling in humility before God's word. Or, Or we read in Acts 13, about the church, how they rejoiced when they heard the word of God. Brothers and sisters, how, how often does this happen in our life as we read God's word? That we respond in, in such a way that it, it moves us. And, and even as we study doctrine and, and theology and, and maybe get into more of the meat of the word and not just looking at the surface of reality of our salvation, but digging much deeper and understanding the nuances. As we study those things, does it just feed our intellect or does it move us to delight, to tremble, to rejoice and respond appropriately to God? And so you you see that the writer is writing to these Christians and saying, you know, because of this dullness of hearing, you guys are like big babies. You know, you're like 35 years old, but you're acting like you're three months old. You know, you're, you're drinking milk, you're, you're, you're not teaching others as you ought to be, there's, there's no sense of discernment, you don't know the difference between right and wrong. And so he says to them in chapter 6, verse 1, he says, So therefore, let us be done away with babyhood, and let us move on to maturity. He says, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity. Now, I don't know if these things, it's, you know, this is one of those parts of the passage that's sort of difficult. You know, as he talks about these different things, were, was this part of a creed of the early church? Doctrines that people needed to, to adhere to and believe in in order to be a member of the church? It's, it's, it's a little uncertain, but they're, they're very important doctrines. So it's not like we outgrow them like we don't need them. But he's just saying that we need to grow to maturity, to, to perfection, to, mature, uh, to, um, to fullness. And, and the author includes himself in this instruction as well. So he says, let's grow up. Let's move on to maturity in our doctrine and our practice, growing in discernment and teaching these things to others. Let us no longer be satisfied with this shallow religion. 
And then he goes on and he, he warns not only of the need to move forward in verses 1 through 3, but then he also gives a warning against falling away. And this is where he deals with the, the bulk of the text this, that we're going to deal with this morning. He says in, in verses 4 through 6, in this passage that oftentimes has caused many Christians consternation and fear, he, the writer really lays out before us and says that he's talking about a people who had a very strong spiritual experience. I mean, look at the, the description of these people. They had been enlightened. They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have shared in the Holy Spirit. They have tasted the goodness of the word of God uh, and the powers of the age to come. Uh, these, these are pretty incredible terms that, that he uses here. You know, unfortunately, uh, it's, it's somewhat difficult to always know exactly what he's talking about. And so, you know, over the years, some Christians have said, well, if you've been enlightened, that means you have to have been saved. Or if you've tasted the heavenly gift, then that means that you have to be regenerate. Well, the reality is the text isn't quite as clear as, as what we might uh, hope to be. And so we have to be very careful as we come to this text not to bring our presuppositions or or seek to deal with doctrines. I know many people have have sought to deal with this in terms of the perseverance of the saints and to use this text to, to deal with that. And I'm not saying it doesn't have any bearing on that doctrine, but there are other texts that are much more clear. And so I think we need to be careful just to look at this text as it is before us this morning. And, and as we look at that, we see that these are Christians who have been enlightened. The Greek word there, um, as it's used in the Septuagint, means to give light to someone by knowledge or teaching. In other words, it just means to be mentally aware or to be instructed in something. Kids, don't your teachers instruct you, right, in different subjects? And But with this, it doesn't carry the idea of the response that a person has, whether it's by faith or, or disbelief. It just really is really saying that these are people whom the word of God has come to them, and they have been instructed in the truth of the word. And for a while, it may have seemed that their minds and their hearts have maybe even been awakened to their need, and, and, and they walked in, in light of the gospel preaching that they've heard. We we've see later on that they also tasted the goodness of the word of the Lord. Uh, they, they experienced it to some degree, the word of God. They heard it preached, they responded, maybe even submitted to it for a while. But, but as Jesus talked, he talked about those people who would receive the word of God, but only for a little while. And eventually they would uh, um, not listen to that word anymore. Uh, let me read from Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus talks about the parable of the seeds. He says, as for what was sown on the rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. He, he has gives no more attention to the word. So they were enlightened. They were instructed, at least to some degree. But they also tasted the heavenly gift. Now, what is this heavenly gift? Well, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 9.15 about the most indescribable gift of being Jesus Christ. And of course, the salvation that he comes to, to give to us. And so these people have tasted, they have experienced the Lord's goodness in the gospel of, of God's Son. They've also shared in the Holy Spirit. Now, here again, 
you know, we can jump to conclusions and say, well, if they've shared in the Holy Spirit, that meant that they have the Holy Spirit in them. Well, what's interesting is, is that the Greek word that's used here and translated share has more to do with association and not so much with possession. In other words, these people had never were, they had never possessed the Holy Spirit. They simply were around to see the Holy Spirit's common work and operation in the church community. Uh, they also saw the powers of the age to come, uh, which was most likely referring to the miracles that, that they had seen, that they had seen the apostles or others do miraculous signs. We know that Jesus, when, when he came to declare the kingdom of God and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, he did so in power and he did so in, in performing miracles as well. But, but we know that, that even those who perform miracles uh, doesn't necessarily mean that their hearts have been changed. Um, Jesus, talking in the Sermon on the Mount, he said at the end, he says, you know, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, um, on, on that day, there will be those who will say to me, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons and do many mighty works in your name? And Jesus says, I will say, I never knew you. So just because a person can do miraculous signs doesn't necessarily mean that they are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so those who see these miracles, it doesn't necessarily mean that there's been a work of God in their hearts. So the, the reason I go through all those terms is I just want you to see that these are people who are plugged into the church. These are people who are plugged into the worshiping community and they saw God at work in that community. They preached, uh, they had the word of God preached to them. They were taught about Jesus Christ. They saw the Holy Spirit work in, in terms of transforming people's lives. And they even saw miraculous gifts. But as John says in 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, in, in describing people very much the same way, he said, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are, they all are not of us. In other words, these people were in the church, they were in the community, but they were not of those who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. John MacArthur uh, points out that none of the normal New Testament terminology for salvation is actually used in these verses in, in Hebrews. In fact, no term used here is ever used elsewhere in the New Testament for salvation. So what is it that the author is, is trying to do here? He, he really is trying to create a category that his, neater, that his readers need to be aware of. A category of people who are in the church, but not of the church. They might have been members of the church. They might have been teachers in the church. They might have been prominent people. They may have been elders in the church, but they were not of the church. They were people who profess Christ, but who are not truly in Christ. And, and the evidence that we have for this is in verse 6 that they have fallen away. At some point, they have fallen away from Christ. Now, this is where I think many Christians struggle. They're like, oh, what does this mean to fall away? Uh, uh, John Brown, <coughs> excuse me, uh, in his commentary, states it very 
well. He said, this doesn't consist in falling into actual sin, however gross and aggravated, but in an open, total determined renunciation of all the constitute principles of Christianity and a return to false religion or determined infidelity or ungodliness. That's a fancy way of saying they rejected Jesus. They rejected Jesus. They, they, they walked away. Um, David McWilliams points out, he said, you know, the writer's concerned here is not a single act of sin that we may have committed, but it's really a state of mind. It's really a commitment, an attitude. It's really what we see uh, if you look at 1 John chapter 5, 1 John 5, verse 16. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I don't say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. It seems uh, reasonable that uh, what he's talking about here in this passage is is tied in with First John chapter five, that sin that leads to death, and and we might know it as the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that Jesus talked about in Mark chapter three, verse twenty nine. Jesus said, "But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin." And so these are people who have rejected Christ. You know, these are not just people who have um, committed a, a sin or two. Look with me, if you would, to, to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Um, he describes these people. It says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. You see, he's describing someone whose heart has not been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of us as Christians sin. I'm not denying that. But, but the love of sin, the deliberate sin, the, the outright rebellion uh, of sin is not part of the life of the Christian who, who loves the Lord. We wrestle. We wrestle and, and struggle in regards to our sins and our temptations because God has given us a new heart, a heart that loves him and, and desires him. Look down at verse 29 of chapter 10. It says, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? You see, these are people who have taken the sacrifice that, that, that Christ has given and have spurred it, who have seen it with contempt. And, and so we, we see here, you know, with these um, people, that these are, are people maybe who once walked with Jesus, who once made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, but they have turned from him and they have stood with the mockers and, and with the crowd at the cross who mocked Jesus and denied who he was. And so I say that because there may be those who are here today who, who in, in your struggle with sin, Satan is coming to you and, and you've blown it again. And Satan is pointing out your sin and he's saying, remember Hebrews 6. Remember Hebrews 6. 
You are crucifying the Son of God all over again. You've gone too far this time. God is not willing to forgive you. And if Satan is coming to you um, with, with that line, then you need to say to Satan what Jesus said. Satan, you're a terrible exegete. You're twisting scripture. Just like what Satan did with Christ in, in the wilderness. He's, this is not about our struggling with sin in our lives, but this is about knowing Jesus. And the people that he's describing here are people who were part of the church community, who, who appeared to love the Lord Jesus Christ, but just say, I'm done with it. I'm walking away. And, and so he's not so much talking, if I could illustrate it this way, he's not so much talking about a Peter who denies Jesus three times, uh, sees his sin and confesses that sin, but he's really talking about a Judas Iscariot. Someone who had belonged to the covenant community, a man who heard Jesus, a man who lived with Jesus, a man who saw the work of the Holy Spirit changing the lives of people, uh, one who had tasted the heavenly gift. But when push come to shove, Judas rejected Christ and, and he walked away denying him. He, he had contempt for, for Christ. He was turning his back upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are many today who have done that, who have walked away from the church, who would probably consider themselves Christians and say, yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. But the problem is that their life shows otherwise. Their life sort of uh, um, demonstrates where their true allegiances and their convictions lie. They really have nothing to do with Jesus when it comes to repentance of sin or walking in holiness or obedience to Christ. Uh, their, their, um, their belief in Christ is really just sort of a, a verbal allegiance uh, to that. And, and so he's given us a warning here that we need to be careful. And, and the writer brings this up because people who do not have this category do not see the danger of drifting in their faith as these believers were doing. They're, they they're, they wouldn't be concerned about the immaturity of their faith. And he wants them to see that apostasy from a profession of faith is a real thing. And he wants to challenge them to take that to heart in regards to their own life. You see, Judas, when he was a disciple, I'm sure when he first started out, it was never his intention to three years later to betray the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. How, how did he get there? Well, he didn't respond appropriately by faith to what he was hearing and what he was seeing. He just drifted. And, and, and his love of money was never repented of. And so at the end of the day, when push came to shove, Judas knew that he loved money and self-preservation more than he loved Jesus. And this is a good thing for us to remember because there is a category of people who walk away. And, and the people in this category uh, don't decide to walk away early on in their Christian walk. Oftentimes that comes much later. But instead, and hear me at this, brothers and sisters, instead they decide day after day not to take seriously the gospel. You see, it's not that they say early on, I'm going to walk away from Jesus. It's just that they do so little by little, day by day, not taking seriously the gospel. And when push comes to shove, they realize that they really don't want to die to self and to give up their sin. And so they, they walk away. 
And so we have that category that's there. And this is a warning for all of us within the church. Uh, the writer wasn't just trying to identify a few. He was really trying to say to the church, so look at your life. Examine your life. And of course, you could only imagine them saying, but, but how do we know if we're, we're walking with the Lord? And, and that line is sometimes very hard to define. But, but he does give us some help here in verses 7 and 8. He says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. You see, he's saying that if you are a recipient of the rain of biblical teaching and the gospel teaching, and God pours his blessing out upon you and forms fruit in you, you are to rejoice. Because it is a work of the evidence of God in your life. But he goes, if you live under that same biblical preaching and that same gospel teaching, and all you see in your life is thorns and thistles and prickly and dead things, he said, then you are near to being cursed. You see, in, in just this small passage, the author makes the point that, that the land is the same and the rain is the same. The difference is the fruit that is produced or the fruit that is not produced on the land. Jesus uh, talked about this in his teaching as well in Matthew chapter 7, verse 18. Matthew seven eighteen. He said, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. And so there's only really one way to identify positively those who belong to Jesus Christ. And that is by the fruit that comes over time. The fruit that comes over time. So it's not so much what we profess that's important, but what God produces in us that is important. F.S. Bruce points out that continuance or continuing in the faith is the test of reality. As we continue in our faith, as the Lord works in us the fruit of his character in us, then we know that God is at work in the hearts, uh, in our hearts. And we see that fruit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. You can see God's work of regeneration always produces fruit in a believer's life. But I, I want us to be careful here, um, and, I, and I want us to, to, to notice something very important, and that is that we need to be careful to look for fruit and not for service. I think in the uh, at least in the American church this is true that oftentimes if you if you have a couple or a family or a single person that comes into your congregation and they jump in and they roll up their sleeves and they start teaching Sunday school or or you know they're cleaning the church or they're out witnessing or they're doing all these different things in 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 the church how do we perceive them wow this is really a neat couple to have or this is a neat uh, person to have in our church and it's just it's just so good and they must be very mature but as as we saw in Matthew 7 a person could prophesy in the name of God a person could cast out demons first Corinthians 13 says you could even give sacrificially to the poor but if you have love 
If you don't have the fruit of God's spirit in you, you are nothing. First Corinthians even says you could even give your life to the flames. You could be a martyr for your faith. But if you don't have the fruit of the work of God in your heart, it is nothing. Because the fruit is important because it is the evidence of God's work in us. So parents, as you're looking at your kids, you know, I, I have to say this. I'm loving being on Facebook and watching our people in our congregation have their kids quote Heidelberg Catechism or the Confession of Faith or Bible verses or and, and to see the kids hiding God's word in their heart. And all those things are really great. But as we sort of use a measuring stick for our kids to see where they are spiritually and, and to see if God is, is working in their hearts, we need to be looking for the fruit of the Spirit and to see, is, is God creating that? Is he developing that in us? Because without the Holy Spirit, we can never grieve over our sins. Without the Holy Spirit, we would hunger. We would never hunger for holiness. Without the Holy Spirit, we would never humble ourselves and acknowledge our sin. We would not be teachable. We would not love others, nor would we love the church. You see, God will not ignore the work that he is doing in his people. And so if you are, are here today and, and you are, are struggling in your faith, maybe you have heard this passage from Hebrews and you felt like you have been dull of hearing I want to encourage you, spur you on to, to trust Christ, to, to be reminded that you were not able to save yourself, but Christ in you is, is more than enough. And, and the writer wants to assure his people uh, that they are moving forward in their faith. And we'll look at that more next week. But today, as we close, I just want to ask this question. Where are you spiritually speaking? This text is for all of us. Are, are we dull of hearing? You know, you may have been in the church all your life and you've heard the words and, and the sounds, but the truth is that you're really not all that interested. You know that you should be interested, but the things of God just don't grab your heart. The truth of God has sort of flattened out. Things like grace and faith and love, they just sort of seem worn out and old terminology. There's really nothing there for you. If that's where you are at, that's a heart problem. And it doesn't go away by itself. It, it is a problem that, that you need to acknowledge and, and face. Uh, there's a, there could be many different causes to that. It could be worldliness, loving the world too much. It could be negligence in, in terms of our relationship with Christ. It could be pride. It, any number of things. It really doesn't matter. The reality is, is if that's where you're at, take action. Repent. Don't settle for such a life. That's not normal Christianity. And, and even if everybody around you, if all your friends and your family members and others, they, they live that way, it, it doesn't really matter. Repent. Tell the Lord that it's true that you are not responding to his word as, as you ought. And maybe it's been a long time since you've actually trembled before the word of God or before you rejoiced and you've delighted and maybe even been brought to tears by the things that God has said. But he doesn't want you to stay there. Pray to him that he would give you the grace to repent and to turn to him. And then ask yourself, what would a robust faith in God look like? And be assured 
that God is more than able to do such a work in you. And I encourage you to, to join a Bible study where they actually open the Word of God and they study, they dig into it, they, they seek to apply it, they are passionate about it. Maybe pull out the Westminster Confession of Faith and read it. I mean, it's, it's simply biblical truth. You know, there's tons of resources. You know, I'm sure you can take classes online on the Westminster Confession of Faith and, and sort of dig into it and see the realities of what Scripture teaches. Spend much less time on social media, more time in God's Word. Read good books that spur you on, not only to grow in your intellect, but in your love for other people. In other words, pursue things that strengthen your faith in Jesus Christ. Pursue things that deepen your joy in the Lord. Pursue things that cause you to look to Jesus. You see, Jesus is our only hope. The gospel is just the message about Jesus. Our hope is not in the gospel message, you know, as it, you know, itself, but it's in a person. It is in the one that this message points to, and that's Christ. So get to know Jesus. Jesus is the believer's life. It is in him that we grow and we endure and we mature to the end. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads and have a time of silent meditation this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come to you today and we hear your word that, that is preached, um, it may be even as we come, uh, we, we knew these things. God, we understood this text in this way. And so maybe we don't feel a particular challenge, but we pray that we would take these things to heart. And God, that you would cause us to examine our lives and, and to see where it is that we stand. I, I pray, Lord, that we would also in, encourage one another in, in our faith. And Father, I pray for those that, that, that may be drifting. Lord, for whatever reason, that you would use this message to, to call them back to you. And I pray, God, maybe for those that are listening, maybe even via the internet who who don't know you, Lord, that they would know that there is hope in Jesus Christ, that there is nothing that we have done that you, God, cannot forgive, that your grace and your mercy and your salvation is abundantly greater than anything that we could ever have committed, any sins that we could have committed against you or against other people. And I pray, Lord, that they would know that there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ for those who would believe. And I pray, Lord, that you would draw the hearts of your people and gather your people to yourself to be confident of your work 
and to be thankful, Lord, uh, for the things that you are doing in our lives. As we see the fruit that you are developing in your people, God, let us rejoice that, that you counted us worthy because of your love to save us. Let us not be proud or, or arrogant, but rather to be humbled by that and to be motivated, Lord, to tell others that they may know you as well. We thank you, Father, and we pray these things in, in your name, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.